gentlemen, welcome to the bitter clamor of two eager tongues that we call bardflies. This week we're back to the history with Richard II, a play with much political philosophizing, some beautiful poetry, and almost no action whatsoever. I'm James Smith. And I'm Will Quinn. This is episode 11, From Sun King to Dun King. I am the king! I will punish you. Any man who must say, I am the king, is no true king. Will, before I give a little plot summary, I think this one probably bears at least a quick historical gloss. Uh, What do you know about the history of the real-life Richard II? So Richard II is the son of a famous military commander and the Prince of Wales, who is known as the Black Prince, who himself was the son of Edward III. Devoted Bardflies listeners may recall our episode on Edward III a while ago. Not a very good play. Not a very good play. So Edward III, during his reign as king, ends up enmeshed in a series of wars that go on to become what we call the Hundred Years' War, essentially. And at the start of them, his son, Edward, the Black Prince, the Prince of Wales, becomes a very successful and gallant military commander in France. But he earns distinction and is seen as this great chivalric hero, and he's also known to be uh, quite brutal in battle. And during the course of his rampage throughout France, uh, he becomes wounded in battle and, and succumbs later to his wounds. So his son is Richard II. Now, Richard is sort of hanging off to the sidelines because Edward III is still king. Edward III eventually dies at around the age of 50 and has been unwell for some time. So Richard is elevated to the throne, partially, I believe, to ward off an effort by John of Gaunt, who's a noble we'll meet later, who may have designs on the throne. So you have the elevation of Richard at around the age of 10. And for a while, he's not exactly a major presence in running the realm, There's, as is usually the case, a series of nobles that surround him that serve as the regents and councils to sort of manage the kingdom. Eventually, as he gets a little bit older, there are some major challenges that break out in addition to the Hundred Years' War. There's revolts by peasants at home. Richard plays a role in suppressing those rebellions, and he's trying to sort of put the brakes on wars overseas. However, Richard's a very strong believer in royal prerogatives and and the divine right of kings and his ability to raise taxes and cultivate his court as he sees fit. The tax increases and his basically reliance on a very small coterie of advisors alienates many people. And more or less, there's a struggle for power with him and a series of nobles, including Henry Bolingbroke, uh, who goes on to be Henry IV, uh, after he tries to confiscate lands and disinherit Henry. And Bolingbroke is the the son of the aforementioned... John of, John of Gaunt. Yes, exactly. So rather confused and filled with vicissitudes as his reign is, Shakespeare does a lot of work to simplify the story. But more or less, Richard rises from his youth, not necessarily having much power or preparation, but comes to really believe in the centrality of the throne, the divine right of kings, 
and undertakes a variety of policies that are seen as arbitrary by both the commoners and the lords, and that contributes ultimately to his overthrow. Now, late in life, interestingly, there's been some speculation that he may have been mentally ill or had a personality disorder, though as often is the case with psychohistory, it's rather hard to determine any veracity to those claims. But most people basically agree that he did his best to alienate everyone, all in the name of supremacy. Based on the stuff that I was reading, it sounds like regardless of how mentally unstable he might have gotten in in the last couple of years, he had already succeeded in basically alienating everyone of importance. (laughs) Yes. Yes. As, As we shall see in James's very able plot summary, Richard does his best to annoy, irritate and alienate just about everyone. Uh, So, James, on that note, would you like to give us the course of the story in Richard II? So, basically, the play covers, I think, the last two years of Richard's reign, though, of course, it's compressed in this play. The action of the play is kicked off when King Richard II is forced to adjudicate a quarrel between two of the most powerful nobles in England. In the red corner, we have Thomas Mowbray, Duke of Norfolk, a former opponent of the king who has remade himself as an instrument of royal power. In the blue corner, we have Henry Bolingbroke, the king's first cousin, Duke of Hereford in his own right, and the heir to the wealthiest and most powerful man in the kingdom, John of Gaunt. Among other vaguer charges, including, and I quote, that all the treasons for these 18 years complotted and contrived in this land fetch from false Mowbray their first head in spring. So, very specific set of accusations. Bolingbroke also accuses Mowbray of misappropriating military funds and of having been instrumental in the murder of the king's uncle, Thomas of Woodstock, which is a crime in which the king himself is also implicated, though we don't find that out until after these opening scenes. Mowbray vehemently denies the charges as, and again I quote, issuing from the rancor of a villain, a recreant, and most degenerate traitor, end quote, and challenges Bolingbroke to a duel to settle the issue in single combat. Richard and John Agant plead with the two magnates to kiss and make up, but they are unmoved. Resigned, Richard sets the date of the combat. Fast forward to Coventry on St. Lambert's Day, 1398. The court has gathered to watch the two dukes do battle. Before combat can commence, however, Richard dramatically throws down his scepter. Rather than do battle, he decrees that both nobles will be banished. Bolingbroke for a total of ten years, which is shortly thereafter reduced to six years at the pleading of John of Gaunt, and Mowbray until death. And as it turns out in this case, until death will prove to be a very short time indeed, as by the end of the play we learn that Mowbray has died of the plague in Italy. Shortly thereafter, while preparing to depart for Ireland on account of a rebellion there, Richard is informed that John of Gaunt is on his deathbed and departs to see his uncle for a final time. The scene shifts to Ely House in London, where Gaunt awaits the king. Gaunt, speaking with his brother, the Duke of York, lays out his concerns about the future stability of the kingdom. Gaunt criticizes Richard's inability to listen to good counsel and the extravagance of his court, which has caused Richard to lay punishing taxes on rich and poor alike. In one of the most celebrated of all Shakespeare's soliloquies, Gaunt laments how Richard's actions have debased the once fearful power of England. When Richard arrives, Gaunt lays out his case, concluding with the devastating accusation and what, frankly, Will, I think is probably the sickest burn we've had in all of Shakespeare so far. <laughs> Landlord of England art thou now, not king! Richard, who is, shall we say, not the least self-absorbed character in Shakespeare, doesn't want to hear it. Almost immediately thereafter, Gaunt dies offstage, gaining all of two lines of remembrance from Richard before the king decides that, 
Obviously, the best move here is to disinherit Bolingbroke and take all of Gaunt's possessions for himself, with an eye towards using his riches to fund this Irish campaign that he's about to go on. Now, the Duke of York immediately sees that disinheriting Bolingbroke is a terrible, terrible idea, threatening not just rebellion, but the fundamental laws of inheritance on which Richard's own royal power is based, but he fails to persuade the king. York's fears are shown to be justified in the very next scene, which sees several nobles, including the powerful Earl of Northumberland, about whom more in a future play, express sympathy for Bolingbroke and frustration at the king's mismanagement of the kingdom. They ride off to support Bolingbroke, who is returning with a group of supporters to try to claim his inheritance. Bolingbroke is greeted with almost universal support from the nobility and common people alike. Richard's few supporters disperse to try to raise troops, but with the king away in Ireland, they fail to keep a meaningful force in the field, while the Duke of York, whom Richard has left in charge in his absence, joins with Bolingbroke's forces. By the time Richard makes it back onto English soil, he is isolated and alone, without a power base, with no choice but to accept Bolingbroke's terms. After some back and forth, he agrees to give up the crown. Richard retires to Pomfret Castle, and Bolingbroke is crowned as King Henry IV. Now, of course, it wouldn't be medieval England without some good old-fashioned scheming, and a small group, led by the Bishop of Carlisle and Duke of York's son, plots to restore Richard to the throne. When the Duke of York hears of this, he immediately goes to Henry to report the treason. Henry orders the conspirators arrested. Shortly thereafter, a group of murderers breaks into Pomfret and, believing that they are acting on the king's wishes, though not on his specific instructions, kill Richard. When they bring the body before Henry, however, he condemns the crime. While he knows that his position is stronger with Richard dead, he also knows that Richard's blood is on his hands. The play ends with Henry IV declaring his love for the deposed and murdered Richard and vowing to go on a crusade to expiate his sins. And there you have it. That is the, the plot of Richard II. And Will, I, I have to note, really it feels like, I, I feel like this plot summary, basically half of this plot summary is taken up with Act 1 and the rest, you know, the, the remaining four acts, almost nothing happens. Yeah, that's, that's essentially correct. It's all of the unspooling that happens in the last four acts of Richard basically on the road to imprisonment. There's some interesting things that happen along the way, but there's a little bit of the Henry's machinations, Bolingbroke's machinations, to effectively make himself king without making anybody feel like that it's too grossly inappropriate. But that's almost like a little drama compared to the fact that he more or less gets rid of the king yeah. by the second act. So, Will, there's an obvious parallel here at the beginning of the play in this conflict between Mowbray and Bolingbroke that seems like it's in conversation with that inns of court scene in Henry VI part one between I believe it's Somerset and Richard of York if I'm remembering correctly mm -hmm. now obviously Richard in this play after banishing the two nobles goes off and does some what I would very scientifically refer to as some crazy shit <laughs> that effectively leads to his downfall. But I was interested as our resident political expert in hearing your thoughts about his strategy of dealing with these two nobles. Cause it does feel like it feels like Richard's effort at banishment here is meant as a political strategy, you know, basically to prevent the quarrel between these two very powerful men from turning into a larger issue in the Commonwealth. So what do you think of this strategy as a way with dealing with that potential problem? 
So there's the strategy itself, and then there's the way Richard implements it here. I think the strategy itself could conceivably work, but I don't think that banishment works particularly well in most times and places. Uh, as we've seen in other plays, and as anybody knows from just a cursory reading of history, people that tend to be exiled are quite dangerous, and if they have a legitimate claim and reason to be disenchanted, shall we say, with the man who banished them, they can raise armies overseas in relatively comfortable and unconstrained circumstances. They can find external enemies to work with. They can scheme and plot. So there's a sense in which banishment without dealing with an opponent's power base doesn't really actually address the core problem here. Saddam Hussein, not a big fan of exiling people, shall we say. Now, that may have problems, you know, if you end up just executing everybody that raises the slightest bit of internal dissension. You can either create more of that, or you can just so uh, attrit and weaken your internal power that you're weak to external attack anyway. But anyway, all of which so, is to say... Will, yeah. so that, that all is interesting, and I, I hear what you're saying. I do have a question about it in terms of the specifics that Richard is dealing with, right? Which is, so Bolingbroke is already a very powerful noble, you know, and he stands to become, if not the most powerful man in the kingdom, then the second most powerful man in the kingdom after the king himself on the death of John of Gaunt, right? Yeah. And similarly, the Dukes of Norfolk are extremely powerful and wealthy magnates who essentially are are almost mini kings in the north of England at this point mm -hmm. in history, right? So understanding that all that is the case, do you think that he's also struggling with the fear of, you know, one of these men killing the other and there, therefore, A, the remaining man being more powerful than ever, ever before, yes. while the dead man, obviously his family is going to be pissed off, right? Do, do you see yeah. what I'm asking? Yeah, no, absolutely. I think the problem, and this goes to the second part of it, right, is one could conceive, if you think of banishment as a strategy for Richard to hedge against the worst outcome here, there's a way in which something like that could work. The problem also comes from how he does it, which comes across as incredibly arbitrary and doesn't really have much of an explanation to it. You know, part of what a king should be doing, right, is brokering the compromise between these men or trying to come to some sort of resolution. Right, uh, which, which Richard tries and fails to do. It's, it's a very half-hearted <laughs> attempt. I mean, the effort's not very strong. The effort is not very strong, and I think that may be because Richard is actually implicated in Mowbray's actions. So you've got to sort of put a pin in that and wonder... If too much is revealed, maybe Mowbray starts telling, you know, Richard's involvement. There could be that lurking in the back of his mind. And perhaps the claims of these two men are irreconcilable. I mean, one is accusing the other of treason. One way or the other, it's going to look bad for Richard, and he's in a very unpleasant situation. But for sure, when you bring these guys together for trial by combat, you let them get revved up, you let their supporters and their animosities fester, and then you jump in at the very end and you sort of bargain down the banishment terms for various people 
you don't really leave much room for people to believe that you're act actually acting out of justice or wisdom. You're just trying to be expedient in the way you're, you're dealing with people that are presenting problems to you. And because of the arbitrariness, it causes yet more resentment in his subjects. It's kind of like the bad version of King Solomon, uh, where King Solomon has the two women that are fighting over, uh, you know, the, the baby. infant that they both claim. And so he offers to split the baby in half, right? And the true mother is genuinely aggrieved. So King Solomon was wise. The other version of that is to uh, split the metaphorical baby and, you know, actually split it in real life instead of saying, oh, this is a this is one way of solving this to actually leave nobody happy and to not really get to the, the heart of the matter, to not really address the underlying problem, to not really buy off your enemies or placate them, and to just make more resentment more widely known. And, you know, in the case of Mowbray, to get rid of a tacit ally of your own, which Richard may want in the coming struggle. So Yeah, it does feel like Richard here, you know, Richard needs to be building bridges, as we see throughout the play, he is relying on a very small coterie of advisors and nobles and, you know, has almost no regard for the idea of needing to build a power base among his, among at least some group of his more powerful nobles. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, maybe he doesn't view Bolingbroke as, or Norfolk, maybe he doesn't view either one of them as real options for partnering with but you know these are these are two of the most powerful men in the kingdom and if he has problems he needs some of those guys to be on his side so i think this is this goes to how you interpret and understand richard right because in a, in a sense he's got a very medieval view of kingship where he's the center of the universe but even within that construct he doesn't really recognize the need for a constituency that supports him the three guys he has that are his uh, courtiers that are constantly they're basically just sycophants and yes men i think it's bushy bushy uh, baggett and green yes bushy baggett and green they're compared by many characters throughout the play to caterpillars the implication being that they're silently eating the kingdom apart and looting and taking money for their own benefit. They don't really seem to have any broader support. He's not really expanding and building bridges, as you say. He doesn't have a, an alliance or a coalition of people behind him. He has a bunch of guys that basically validate whatever he thinks is the right thing to do in the moment. And it, it, this is his whole problem, right? He doesn't recognize that Bolingbroke and Gaunt and some of his other uh, relatives have claims to power that run independent of his own and actually have the resources to back it up. He thinks the claim almost in and of itself is enough to secure him. So I, I think there's a few different ways to read his behavior. On the one hand, he has no constituency and he doesn't seem to recognize the importance of building alliances with his with any of his more powerful nobles. On the other hand, he's very clearly intelligent, you know, yeah. at least he's represented in this play. I mean, Richard almost feels like he's more of a poet or a philosopher than a king at various points. And it's interesting to me that someone who is that intelligent is unable to recognize the reality of his situation. Uh, so one, I think, one interpretation of him is that he's, really an intellectual 
and he just thinks that other people will see things as plainly as he does, you know, without mm-hmm. realizing that there is inherent subjectivity to, or not, maybe not even inherent subjectivity. I mean, I think, I think everyone, at least at the outset of the play, objectively agrees Richard is the king. But he doesn't realize that that is not enough to override other people's interests, depending on what's happening. Um, yes. I think there's also a reading of this where Richard's just a straight up a sociopath, you know, and I think that you most specifically see in, in the moment after John of Gaunt's death, John of Gaunt gets all of two lines of Richard's time before Richard says, so much for that. Thank God he's dead because we're going to take all his money and all his stuff and sell it to finance this war. Richard's crime above all feels like it's laying unnecessary tax burdens on people for the glory of his court and basically to give to his friends. And that can be seen as either just arbitrary, the arbitrary rule of someone who doesn't understand what he's doing, or it can be, you know, the actions of someone who's a sociopath who just believes that the realm is his plaything. Yes. Yeah. I mean, either in either case, it's not a good situation. I mean, I think to the, the interpretation of Richard is slightly spacey, intellectual and esthete. He's got a, powerful claim and everybody recognizes that legitimacy is powerful even henry later when he wants to have himself crowned king he wants richard to surrender the trappings of power and transfer them to him uh so there is this sort of idea of people do respect and realize that richard is the king but richard also expects it to be more than that you know when he makes his judgment at the trial by combat there's this sort of Solomonic expectation. He's like, well, I'm offering a reasonable compromise, you know? Bolingbroke doesn't have to stay away for 10 years. You know, John of Gaunt was pleading for him to come back uh, sooner. And, you know, he just has to be gone for six years. This is a very reasonable proposition. I'm the king. I get to decide what happens. And I'm being merciful and reasonable. You know, Mowbray, you can just head off and go Piss off, off and do whatever Mowbray. you want to do. Right. Yeah, exactly. But there's this sort of like, well, I, I you know, I'm, I'm a reasonable man. You know, I'm offering reasonable options here that are less bad than what you would have had otherwise, and you're here at my sufferance. So there's a combination of the arrogance and also this idea that he can forge these compromises that, one, other people just have to accept, but also that he's coming up with them and that he stands head and shoulders among his subjects to offer these wise pronouncements. But they're not all that wise. And uh, he's ultimately not all that powerful, hence uh, his line about the crown being hollow in the end. Yeah, I have to say also, he there, there's something to this thing of disinheriting Bolingbroke and that dialogue that he has with York when that happens. York recognizes why this is such a problem, and he says... Take Herford's rights away and take from time his charters and his customary rights. Let not tomorrow then ensue today. Be not thyself. For how art thou a king but by fair sequence and succession? Now a foregone. If you do wrongfully seize Herford's rights, you pluck a thousand dangers on your head. You lose a thousand well-disposed hearts. And prick my tender patience to those thoughts which honor and allegiance cannot think. Right, so... Everyone acknowledges the strength of Richard's claim, and yet it feels like Richard himself doesn't understand what the underpinnings of his own claim are. 
which is the underpinnings of his direct descent from Edward III, who's the son of Edward II, who was the son of Edward I, right, all the way back to Churdich, King of the West Saxons in the 900s or whatever. You know, Richard is undermining the very discourse on which his own power rests. Yeah, I think the the idea of disinheriting is really actually a powerful metaphor, and I think most people realize that that's what's actually undermining his rule. And it's interesting that Bolingbroke, who is quite Machiavellian and I think has a much more modern view of what the throne is supposed to represent, he sort of steps into this and tries to actually rectify or right the transfer of power under the law. Yes, it opens it up when he's disinherited by Richard, essentially. It's like there's this contradiction that enables Richard to be deposed, but Henry Bolingbroke realizes he kind of needs to almost even the scales and make sure that the transfer of power from Richard to himself is seen as legitimate. He doesn't just kill Richard right away. That's actually one interesting thing about the play. And he doesn't even imprison him right away. He has to effectuate this elaborate ritualistic transfer of power that multiple people see and recognize, which is interesting because in another circumstance, right, there is the kind of idea that Bolingbroke could just come in and kill Richard and put the crown on his head and say that he is king. He's trying to actually, despite the fact that he's Machiavellian and also subverting the idea of divine right and legitimacy in a more traditional sense, he also recognizes the power of it. And he recognizes that in some ways, I think that Richard squandered it and that it needs to be restored in a way that gives people confidence. Yeah, uh, well, and he's he, the king. And he knows that he has to rule. Where, where Richard seems to almost seems to want to play at being a king more than he actually wants to do the job of being king, mm-hmm. uh, which I will say, nonetheless, does separate him from the much less intelligent Henry VI, who doesn't really even want to pretend to be king. <laughs> yes, <laughs> right? that's right. Bolingbroke definitely recognizes that what he's doing is not a good precedent. You know, I don't think that Bolingbroke is is under any illusions that deposing a king is just going to magically result in everything being great, right? Um, right. And I, and I think you also see that in in his acknowledgement of sort of the moral dilemmas of kingship, right? Which which we see at the end, where on the one hand he one hundred percent views his position as stronger with Richard out of the way after Richard is murdered. You know, he says. They love not poison that do poison need, right? Saying, Mm. I needed him dead, but I don't love that I needed him dead, and I don't think it looks good that I needed him dead. And so he sees that being king engenders needing to make hard decisions and bringing upon yourself a certain level of moral, moral hazard, I guess. And so Bolingbroke, I think, is aware that Difficult decisions need to be made, but also that he needs to actually do the job in order to have those difficult decisions carry weight. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, I think I think that's right. I mean, there's a little bit of, um, will somebody rid me of this troublesome priest? There's a little bit of, I don't want to be the one to actually say that somebody should go kill this guy, but man, life would sure be better if he were not around. And there's a sense in which the nobles, it's uh, Sir Pierce... Um, Exton. Exton. Sir Pierce Exton, who is the one who actually goes in and kills Richard in the end. 
though not before Richard kills two of his goons, which is actually a rather impressive feat for a uh, you know intellectual and esthete who's been imprisoned in the tower. <laughs> Regardless, Exton is is trying to satisfy Henry's wishes and clear best interests, even though you know Henry never actually wants to say so out loud. Yeah. Which of course makes you sort of question how genuine Henry's anguish really is when he vows to go on crusade at the end and how much guilt he really feels for, yeah. for Richard's murder. But there is this sort of element of recognizing like, man, this is sort of what it means to yeah. be king. And, you know, at the same time, he spares uh, the Duke of York's son who's involved in a rebellion against him. So he could be even more cold-blooded. And you sort of realize maybe he's trying to like delicately walk the line a little bit more carefully, perhaps, than Richard Well, did. I think he knows... And we'll we'll see how this develops in the two parts of Henry the Fourth, but I think he knows just from his experience of deposing Richard that he doesn't rule at the sufferance of his nobles in mm-hmm. the sense of that one noble could just be like I'm out, you're not king anymore. But he does know that he needs to maintain the goodwill of the nobility as an estate, right? Yeah. And you know, one thing that's remarkable I think about his rise to power is the degree to which he becomes king because he has the support of both the nobility and the common people that King Richard has lost. Having just become king by virtue of, you know, leading a noble revolt, I don't think he feels like he can go about alienating a bunch of the most powerful supporters that he has by killing their children, right? I I think that there's an interesting element here since you brought up the nobles as an estate and the commoners almost as an estate unto themselves. There's the scene where Henry rides into London with Richard and is being hailed as the king while Richard is being spat upon and things are being thrown at him, which is like a shrewd bit of political theater in that he's really trying to solidify not only the transfer of power, but the fact that he's got the support of the nobles and the commoners all at once. Yeah. One other point on this, Will, before we go on to our final topic that I wanted to touch on is that I, I think it's interesting that... Richard, who has such a high opinion of his royalness, basically, and has all these long discourses about how the the holy oil that anointed me cannot be washed away and all this stuff, nonetheless does give up the crown. He doesn't believe this stuff so thoroughly that he's willing to die for it. And I think that, at the end of the day, gives the lie to a lot of his pronouncements. You know, whereas we talk about Charles I a lot um, and we have different opinions about Charles I, but Charles I went to his death because he did not believe that it was possible for the king to give up his divinely appointed office, right? Mm. Richard basically lets Bolingbroke get away with it. You know, he doesn't force Bolingbroke to that difficult PR position of actually killing him. And it feels like that actually does sort of undermine Richard's high opinion of of his state. Yeah, though I would say, I think that's right. But I would also say that leaders like Charles I are relatively, I think, uncommon among just people in general and in leaders themselves. There are very few people that are truly willing to die for a principle in that way, like their own claim to power as as a principle, I think. But yeah, no, I, I think there's definitely an element of truth there. This raises the last topic that we wanted to come to and discuss, which is Richard 
in some ways, as you said, is kind of a political philosopher, very rooted in this idea of the divine right of kings and his legitimacy derived from God. And he sees the realm as sort of embodied in his person. But then there's another view, and that's kind of the view Bolingbroke takes, but I think even more explicitly it's the view that John of Gaunt takes in his famous soliloquy, which is where he talks about England as a nation, essentially. I'm kind of wondering what your take on that was in these two different visions of England as more than just the king and Richard's view of the realm as his plaything, essentially. Will, can we just quickly play this John of Gaunt speech, if only because the pod needs more Patrick Stewart? Yeah, oh, absolutely. In in general. This royal throne of kings, this sceptered isle, this earth of majesty, this seat of Mars, this other Eden, demi-paradise, This fortress built by nature for herself against infection and the hand of war. This happy breed of men. This little world. This precious stone set in the silver sea which serves it in the office of a wall or as a moat defensive to a house against the envy of less happier lands. This blessed plot, this earth, this realm, this England, this land of such Dear souls, this dear, dear land is now leased out. I die pronouncing it like to a tenement or a pelting farm. England, bound in with a triumphant sea, is now bound in with shame. So, honestly, Not a lot happens in this play, and frankly, I think it works significantly better read as a work of political philosophy than it works as drama. And, you know, and you get this watching the Hollow Crown thing. I think you get this even just reading the play. It's kind of boring if you're reading it as a story. The interest in it is in the psychology of Richard and in all this talk about What does it mean to be a king? What is the office of a king? What is the nation, right? So basically, my feeling is that Richard confuses the performance of being king with the act of being king. Richard is very invested in this idea of divine right, of his having been appointed by God to be the king, and with the sort of awesome power and significance of that fact. While that... I think is rich philosophical ground. And frankly, though at this point in history probably was not fully articulated, definitely was a major element of how medieval and even early modern kingship was conceived of. 
Nonetheless, none of that stuff really matters if you're not actually doing the job of being a king. And I think we have in the John of Gaunt speech, and I think throughout some of these, you know, through some of the dialogue in the rest of the play, we get a sense of what that is, right? Where, like, Richard feels like because he's been divinely appointed, in his view, to be the king, that means that everything in the kingdom is his to dispose of as he wishes. And that is the origin of of that amazing line of Gaunt's where he says, landlord of England art thou now, not king, right? Saying, Mm. you're treating this like it's a profit enterprise for you. Whereas in that long discourse, he's talking about the idea of, and he doesn't explicitly say the king is supposed to lead this, but I think that's the subtext, right? That England is a country that is an element unto itself. It pre-exists Richard and the kings are supposed to be the stewards. Exactly. Of right? That. Like the king's office is to protect and advance the welfare of that nation. And, you know, and I think this is where it connects to some, some of the nationalist discourse of today, which is where people tend to condemn and probably properly condemn nationalist points of view when they arise from a pedantic and overly closed off view of like the who is included who is included in one thing and we're defining what it is and no one else can come in and no one can go out and that solipsistic view of it i think is ultimately self-destructive on the other hand i think gaunt has a much more positive view of it which is we're all in this together this is our group of people. This is our responsibility that we're trying to advance. Other people have their responsibilities, mm-hmm. you know, less happier men, you know, and there's pride to be had in what we've accomplished and in advancing the welfare of this group. That doesn't necessarily mean that other people don't have their pride, but what we're doing here is is advancing this group of people. Does that? I don't think I've articulated this perfectly. No, no. I but. think I think you're onto something here. I I think that um, if you even look at what Gaunt says in his speech, there's a tremendous emphasis laid on the land and the physical landscape of England and its connection to the people. So when he says this sceptered isle, this earth of majesty, the seat of Mars, this other Eden, this fortress built by nature for herself against infection in the hand of war, he's sort of saying that we're we're deeply tied to this place. And that places have power over the people that live there or come to those places. And that it's also, to some degree, borne by history. You know, talking about war, I think, is no accident. They have this common experience of invasion and supplantation and and people coming in and making it their own. But there's also something that is core to the identity that transcends all of that, right? Yeah, And there is something that is a core to what being England is. And I think it's tied to the specific place and the people that live there. Now, that doesn't necessarily have to have all of the, or that may not necessarily need to have all of the ugly connotations, I think, that some contemporary nationalists uh, or many contemporary nationalists take with it, and historically, certainly. But there is this idea of... And it can be a kind of a beautiful idea of, of the commonwealth, of something that is commonly shared by a people in this context. And Gaunt believes in that and believes that when your leader 
you're supposed to be the steward of that, not just somebody who's exploiting it for profit, uh, which is how he sees Richard. Yeah, you, and, and I think in, in various other points throughout the play, you get this sense that that is not in conflict with the idea of divine right. I don't think that any of this stuff goes against the idea that the king may be appointed by God, you know, or, or maybe by virtue of being king bears some sort of almost theocratic power. But there is the sense that the king does have a duty, that the king is not just there to exist as king and to enjoy that, right? There's the idea that the king is there to manage the kingdom well. You know, yeah, we it's, have a, this, it's a serious business, you know? Yeah, yeah, there's that scene with the gardener later on, and the gardener almost feels like, you know, an interpolation yeah. by Shakespeare to be able to, like, jam his opinion in. Though, who are we to say what, what Shakespeare's opinion really is? But the gardener says... He here refers to Richard, and he says, Oh, what pity it is that he had not so trimmed and dressed this land as we this garden. Goes into this description of how they tend the garden over time. And then he says, Had he done so, i.e. treated the kingdom in the way that we treat the garden, himself had borne the crown, which waste of idle hours hath quite thrown down. You know, which is, you may be divinely appointed by God, but you still have to do the work that being king entails. And Richard has not done that work, I think. Yeah. I mean, I think so often it's actually a great metaphor and it's one that a number of statesmen have used over time. Most notably, I think of um, George Shultz, who is secretary of state under uh, Ronald Reagan. He talked about diplomacy as gardening, essentially. You're trying to tend your plot, open up opportunities for the future, but you're also meant to maintain and watch over this space that you have. And it's kind of a perpetual thing, but it's real work. I mean, gardening, as anybody who's done any gardening knows, it's, it's real work and it's a 24-7, 365 process, the planning of it, the care for it. And it's an organic thing. I think Richard, almost by his intellectualism, gets lost in this idea of divine right as superseding his actual duties and becomes enamored with this concept as opposed to the actual, as you said, the actual act of being king as opposed to the idea of being king. You know, it should be the act of being king that is the primary motive there. Yeah. Uh, and ultimately, I think that's why Bolingbroke is a more appealing figure to at least a lot of the nobles is they know that he's at least going to do the job and take it seriously and take their counsel to some degree, into account when he's making decisions. Uh, and the common people feel the same. You know, He's not going to be exercising power as arbitrarily and without clear explanation for what he's doing. Yeah, um, well, you know, so, so Richard, you know, Richard has levied these punishing taxes on people, right? But at least as it's portrayed in the play, people's reactions to these taxes is that it's not just that the taxes are there. Right. Though, of course, no one likes being taxed. Right. <laughs> Even if you believe that, as I think most of us do, that taxation is an important thing that, and we should pay our taxes, there is the sense that people are seeing their tax money being spent in ways that is not useful. Right? Right. Richard isn't spending that money on things that, that matter or that advance people's livelihoods or interests. He's spending that money on basically giving out vast patrimonies and gifts to his favorites. You know, the caterpillars that we talked about, right? And that goes to, you know, one last thing I wanted to touch on here, which is 
I've talked about how people can simultaneously believe in divine right while also believing that there is a specific task that needs to be done. And I think Richard is so invested in the concept of divine right that he's failed to realize the degree to which that is a strategy of governance, right? That is a strategy of building up loyalty and political capital, you know? And I think you see with the most effective absolute monarchs, or even monarchs in general, right, both medieval and and early modern, that kings can be very jealous of their power and of maintaining their royal prerogative. But whereas with Richard, it feels like that's mostly because he feels like it's his due. I think where you see it more effectively is in, you know, for instance, in Louis XIV, or, or also in Charles I before the Civil War broke out, and in fact with Elizabeth I even, where people are defending their royal prerogative because that's what enables them to do the things that they think need to be done to advance the betterment of the kingdom. And sometimes their ideas about what the betterment of the kingdom means may be wrong or may be unpopular, but I do think there's a difference between Louis XIV, who is advancing the idea of the Sun King, and, and the Sun King is a big motif in this play as well, in order to maintain loyalty and cohesion versus Richard, mm. who's invested in it in order to advance his private interests. And his private interests are basically keeping his friends happy. Yes. And, you know, if you watch the uh, the Hollow Crown uh, BBC version, collecting pet monkeys and living in splendor, as Ben Wushaw does in that film. Yeah, there's a solipsism to this whole worldview. And I think it, it often happens with people that become enamored with, and I and again, this goes to Richard as sort of philosopher and intellectual, as well as esthete, people that become enamored with the beauty of an idea or the sort of rectitude of an idea at the expense of practicality and political life as it actually exists, which is why there's this constant push and pull over like really how absolute divine right really is. And I think that's true even in medieval England with King John uh, and the Magna Carta and so yeah. forth. Like there's, there's this constant negotiation and there is this realization that, like, in some ways we're all willing to buy into this idea. And, and, you know, in their context, they couldn't see another system that would make perhaps more sense. Perhaps it seemed like a good system even. But that does not mean that whoever is doing it, you know, has the right to do horrendous abuses on people or just abuse their power. It's the arbitrariness. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, you know, not just the tax. Frankly, right? Will, I mean, I think we I think we see this in contemporary politics as well. I don't want to make this about Trump specifically because I think it extends beyond Trump in like the way that we've invested the office of the presidency with this quasi mystical. Yes. You, you can't see yeah. me, but I'm, I'm waving my hands in the air and perambulations of fairy dust. Yeah. You know, but it has certainly happened in American public life. I think we do see this sense by presidents, both good and bad that, they are endowed by their office with some kind of inherent good. Mm. You see that on an extreme level with Trump, but I think you also saw that with, you know, with Obama, who felt like he had the ability to dictate certain things that should happen, right? And and that's sort of been a process, I think, as you know well, that has oh yeah, that has been developed. This is sort of the, the imperial of many, yeah. many years. 
This is the idea of, right, the imperial presidency is... uh... Right, but uh, what I'm trying to get at is I think that any system that invests a role with a certain kind of authority can be opened to this kind of interpretation, right? Where people become more intoxicated with the idea that they are king, right? Like that, you know, and I think you see this a lot, particularly with the way people talk about their electoral mandates. You can tell me if you disagree with yeah, that. Yeah, though, right? though, James, I think I, I think like I might pull the thread on this a little bit because, yes, I do think that there's the tendency of us to build up the presidency and the popular imagination to sort of be, be the all-powerful role. But there's also an element with some of these folks where if the other instruments of government or other, other branches of government do not act where they feel compelled to try and use their power however they can to advance their agenda. And that's more of an instrumental goal, right. I think, for some of them than it is strictly a sense of like the trappings and majesty of the office, which I do think, you know, for the record, affects pretty much everybody that walks into the uh, Oval Office, you know. It's definitely an interesting dynamic. I, I think part of the challenge, right, is when you have somebody who takes on that role and really does want to use the powers however they see fit, uh, whether to enrich themselves, to pursue an agenda, so on and so forth. I mean, at least in in our system, right, you're supposed to have a Congress that's supposed to be robust, and you're supposed to have courts that are independent and also committed to the rule of law. And when you have other branches of government that are either like shirking their responsibilities or are sort of seen as held in hawk to one of the other branches, you arrive at a situation where you really do have kind of an increasingly powerful executive. And, you know, and that's kind of an interesting dynamic. I don't know how much it applies to Richard per se, because it seems like the nobles that are under him, you know, would like to play a role in the proper administration of England, and they are not allowed to. It, it would be as if the president just said, well, the Congress doesn't matter at all, yeah. you know, or the courts don't really matter at all, other than in this general sense of like, we got to keep them happy so they'll shut up. But like, they don't actually have real power. I have the real power. And that's kind of a fascinating uh, dynamic and potential path to sort of think about this play from as well in our modern times. Yeah. Will, should we go to ranking this one? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, I'd be happy to go first. I think we've got quite a lengthy list at this point, so I'm not sure that I'm going to remind me if I'm leaving some out. So I, I do like this one a fair amount. I would actually rank it above certainly part three of Henry VI, just because it's prompted this really interesting discussion, and I think it's beautifully written. And while it may not have much in plot, it's quite well done. But I think it's not quite as good as Richard III as a piece of drama or sort of introspective power that it produces in us. Yeah. That's sort of my immediate comparing it to plays that fit into this category, shall we say. I think it's better than a lot of the comedies that we've seen to date, but that's sort of a separate. Well, I think my, my question to you thing. would be what, what do you. So, I think we've had a very interesting discussion about the ideas in this play, right? I, it, to me, it's. As I said before, I think it works better as philosophy than as drama. Mm-hmm. So the the thing that I'm struggling with, and I think basically, you know, to me, I'm going to say, I think probably I'm going to slot it above Henry VI Part One and below Henry VI Part Two, mm. because I, you know, where Henry VI Part Two, 
I find entertaining throughout and also has some interesting ideas, even if those ideas probably aren't quite as interesting as the ideas in Richard yes. II. I still think yeah. that if I'm reading a work of drama, I want there to be some drama in it. Yes. Yeah, the drama is a little too much. It's a little too much interior in this play. And conversely, right, the reason why I jumped to uh, Henry VI Part Three is something that I think is worse than Richard II, almost indisputably, is that's all plot with no deeper meaning or justification behind yeah. it in some ways, right? It's just events. It's just plot. Whereas Richard, there's a little bit of plot, but it's mostly ideas. Uh, I would prefer the richness of the ideas to plot that doesn't really go anywhere or do anything interesting at the end of the day. But I, I do think like if I were to go and buy tickets to go see something, I would prefer to see an ensemble cast do a really good job with Henry VI Part Two then just go to see Richard on, you know, the average day with whatever cast they assembled. That being said, if you did have a really good Shakespearean actor performing in Richard II, I think you might reach higher heights mm -hmm. with the monologues and soliloquies and some of the interchange and kind of play. This play stage, is so. extremely quotable, I have to say. There's a lot of yeah. great, like, yeah, there's a lot of great individual, you know, soliloquies and lines even though it doesn't all work as drama to me. I mean, some of these plays, right, they're really showcases for great actors, your leading men, to play these roles. And I mean, I think in here you have Bolingbroke, but even more particularly you have Richard, and then you have even have a place for wizened, aged master of the stage to play John of Gaunt. So you have your, your marquee stars. Whereas I actually think in Henry VI, part two, it's actually where your character actors really get to shine, playing your Jack Cades, playing uh, your soon-to-be Richard III, right? Like, you have these characters that are of lesser stature in the course of the play, but they can really chew the yeah. scenery in an incredibly fun way. But they're, they're different angles, whereas, like, the principles in the Henry VI plays don't really—the principal roles are not maybe all that interesting— the, you know, you could have a, a whole cast of, of secondary characters who are great. And it's almost the opposite in Richard II, I would say. So, Will, I'm going to put you on the record here. You have your top five right now are Richard III, one, Henry VI, two, number two, Love's Labor's Lost, three, Henry VI, part one, four, Comedy of Errors, five. You got to make a decision. Where are you placing Richard II? Uh, oh, boy. Um, okay, so let's see. I would put it above Comedy of Errors for sure. Uh, what, what's in my number four? Henry the Sixth, part one. Okay, above that. Love's Labor's Lost. I'm gonna put it above that. So then, so you're, you have a new number three. New number three, Richard the Second. Long may he reign. Or maybe not all that long, as the case may be. <laughs> very, very not long. Uh, <laughs> and for me, it's slotting in at number four. And then MVP of the play, to me, it's clearly Richard. I mean, although, I, I pound for pound, I will say... John of Gaunt only appears in Act 1, I, I think. Maybe it's one or two scenes in Act 2. I believe it's only Act 1. Pound for pound, he may have the most punch per line, if we were to think of it that way. But I think Richard himself is, you know, is almost certainly the most interesting and dynamic and eloquent character in this one. I would concur with that on both counts. Line, line for line, pound for pound, Gaunt is the most eloquent. And has delivers the most beautiful lines, but I think Richard dominates the play as only the title character can in this one. 
So James, do you have a non-Shakespearean recommendation for us this week? I do. So I, as you may or may not know, am a huge proponent of the Criterion channel, Mm. which for those who don't know, the Criterion channel is the internet's best collection of classic films. And the last thing that I watched on there was The Grifters, the Stephen Frears 1990 film, which was, I believe, a Best Picture nominee that year. It's John Cusack, Annette Bening, and Angelica Houston. John Cusack playing definitely simultaneously within type and being sort of a sad sack likable guy, but against type in that he's a criminal. (laughs) And it's basically a story of three small-time crooks who are orbiting each other and the inevitably unpleasant fallout of that. So I I, I quite enjoyed it. I wouldn't say that it's a, you know, I wouldn't say it's 100 out of 100, but definitely worth watching and more generally definitely worth subscribing to the Criterion channel and watching some classic cinema. Absolutely. So James, what's that recommendation one more time? That is The Grifters, directed by Stephen Frears. And that's our show. Tune in next time to hear a snark about a play that finally everyone out there knows about, Romeo and Juliet. Thanks for tuning in to Bardflies. If you like the show, please subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher. Share the show with your friends and give us a glowing five-star review. You can follow us at Bardflies on Twitter or drop us a line at bardfliespodcast at gmail.com.